0: Well, I want to introduce to you a couple of my um, good friends. I have many friends around the country and throughout the years, but tonight I wanted to introduce you to some you already obviously know. One is my wife, Lenya. The other is my good friend, Paul Saber, who flew in from Chicago with his family. Come on out, you guys. And uh, by phone, we have Gino Geraci. And Gino is a pastor up in the Denver area. And Gino, can you hear me? I can. Great. And your face is on the screen. There it is.
1: And you know what? what? I'm watching... I just turned it off because I, I didn't want to get any feedback, but I'm watching you online, online.net.
0: Excellent. <laughs> okay, Gino, I want to ask you a question. You and I grew up together. I think I was... 15 and you were 14 when I first met you. you think that's about right?
1: I think that's about right.
0: It was a track meet and didn't you take first place? I did. Never forgiven you for that, but let's go on. Um, as a pastor of a church in Denver, you have all sorts of people that come in that are looking for something. Sometimes it's fellowship, sometimes it's a hug, friendship, whatever. But there are some who come as spectators and want to slip out quickly and don't want to integrate with anyone. What do you tell people like that? How do you get people in a church like yours to make friends?
1: You know, Skip, I, I missed the last part of what you said. For whatever reason, you cut out like, like towards the, the last half of the, uh, uh, the question. Could you cut, repeat it?
0: Yeah. How do you in your church help people make friends with one another? Some who, who may not necessarily want that when they come in. How do you integrate them into fellowship?
1: Well, you know, uh, it's something that you've said over and over again and and, uh, that we've talked about when I was in Albuquerque, and that is in order to make friends, you must first be a friend. In other words... It's, it's helping people to understand that friendship is a two-way street, that it's okay for you to initiate relationship. and But we'll, we try to facilitate that. We make small groups available. We make kinship groups available. But we also try to remain sensitive to people's circumstances, whether they're young or old or single or new to the area. We try to, we, we try to find an appropriate place where they're going to be the most comfortable.
0: Right. You know... Um... You and I uh, grew up as friends on the wrong side of, of uh, the kingdom, let's put it that way.
1: Yes, we were unbelievers, we were unsaved.
0: That's right, and then we came to Christ, and, and the story is, you, you received the Lord, I was very angry because you preached to me yes. uh, the day after we smoked marijuana together. Yes. And so I thought, come on, something's wrong here, here's a guy who just yesterday was Uh, rolling joints and now you're telling me that I need to get saved and uh, yet through all of that God has been faithful and uh, restored the the years the canker worm is destroyed you were on my staff here and now you pastor a church in Denver we've been close friends and I, I have appreciated your friendship over the years I just wanted to tell you that
1: well thank you skip and I've certainly appreciated your friendship and if I might be so bold as to tell your family and your friends there that the Skip Heitzig who's, that you see and that you love is, is, the, is the real Skip Heitzig. In other words, there's not one Skip Heitzig that goes home with Lenya or travels with me, and then he's a different Skip Heitzig in front of you. Um, I've, I've so admired uh, Skip's faithfulness and obedience. You people are blessed. You have perhaps the finest Bible teacher in America as your pastor. And well,
0: thank what a blessing. you, blessing.
1: And I'm not saying that, Skip, just because you're my friend. I'm saying it because it's true.
0: Well, Gino, thank you. Listen, up here I have also Paul Saber and my dear wife, Lenny. Lenny and I have been friends for, well, a long time. We've been married 21 years. Um, and uh, we were friends before that, weren't we? <laughs> I hope so. You're still my friend? Very much so. Okay. And um, I-, I just want to ask, Paul, you know, you, I've met you, I don't know, how many years ago was it? Ten. years ago. And you came to our fellowship, you and your family, and we've been through lots of different stuff together. What would you say, and either one of you can answer this, what's the most enriching part of a friendship in your view?
2: Well, you know, for me, I think that, as you said, we've been through a lot and we've shared a lot with each other. But, you know, for me, it's probably the fact that it's the closest we get on earth. To what our relationship with God's going to be like—a true relationship with a Christian brother or sister. So, a friendship to me that is has the depth that you and I have had. Um, and I was thinking about it as I was coming over here. Friendship to me is when you have problems in life, it's who you call. Uh, and I thought about coming over here on 9/11. I was on an airplane, uh, an American airline airplane, in uh, in Chicago, where there was uh, panic and I got off the plane and after I called my wife to let her know I was okay I called you and I think that that's sort of a precursor of how we are going to be with Christ you know that we just reach out to him and and that's what friendship is to me
0: that's a great answer Paul what's the hardest part of friendship because friendship you leave yourself vulnerable you um... you take lots of risks and so you're gonna get hurt so there's not always a payoff is there
1: there's you know, big... I didn't hear Paul's answer, Skip.
0: Gino, that's okay. We'll mail it to you, okay. honestly.
1: <laughs> but, but you know, you talked about the hard things about a friendship. Yes. It reminds me of Luke 17 where Jesus warns us. He says, I want to warn you about something. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And you yourself said, you know, cautiously confront with a view that you might be wrong. I think one of the hardest things about friendship is the reality that because you do love someone and you care about someone you're willing to tell them the truth always with an idea that you that there's going to be forgiveness and restoration but there is the hard times where because we love each other we tell each other the truth because we we genuinely do care about each other
0: that's right Lenny, gino, you know were...
2: gino that's what i said that's what i said you <laughs>
0: okay let me have We have internet questions, and uh, I want to kind of get you guys spin on this, okay? I've got a bunch of them. We had 20 actually today. There's no way we can cover them all, but there's one I wanted to cover on the top of the list. It says, I have friends that aren't saved, but I look for openings to share the gospel with them as much as I can. Is there a time when I should sever relationships with non-Christians?
3: I don't think so. I mean, there are certain... It's a difficult, all-encompassing answer, isn't it? Um, Because I have a lot of unsafe family members, and I've been a Christian for since 1978 79 and so obviously I'm not gonna sever my relationship with family members who are saved but it's like Gino said there are times that I have to be honest with them there are times that I just love them I think initially I was so eager about the gospel I was cramming it down their throats and uh, it was all about the evangelism but not very much about the friendship and I think that friendship evangelism works the best when you come alongside and love somebody get involved in their lives enter it to their world of course not to go get smoking joints like you and Gino did. But maybe to find something else that um, would be interesting to that person. And so it opens up opportunity to share the gospel in a much different way. Listen,
0: I've repented. (laughs) Gino, on the other hand, I don't know about, but I know I have repented. I want that to be on the record.
2: You know, I would just tell you that I don't think you should ever sever relationships uh, unless the relationship is a hindrance to you and your faith. But I, I do believe that uh, we don 't know god 's timing, and we get impatient with friends and family. Uh, but I think the most important thing is not to become like your friends that are non christians right. uh, it 's more important that they see in you Christ right. and as they see that, you know it might take a year, it might take fifteen years, it may twenty years i right. 've met people that i 've been friends with for years um, that have come to know the lord that I did not bring to the Lord. Mm -hmm. But 20 years later, they've come to know the Lord.
0: Right, that's when the seed develops. And you know, that's a scriptural principle. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, When I wrote to you and I told you not to keep company with immoral people, I didn't mean immoral people from this world or of this world, or otherwise you'd have to go out of the world. I meant, he said, people who claim that they are Christians and live an immoral lifestyle. That's where the severing begins. But with unbelievers, you're there to rescue them, to bring them into the kingdom. And I think the balance is what Paul said, is that um, you don't want to be like them, but make them like your friend, Jesus Christ. Well, that's all the time we have. So um, we're going to sing another worship song. Thank you, Gino, for coming. God bless you. Thank you for having me. Paul. Thank you. And Lenny, my wife.
3: Imagine for a moment what life would be like without friendships. What if you had no friends, no one to really talk to, no one to turn to, and no one to tell you when you're getting off track? The Four Faces of Friendship is our topic tonight, where we will look at a number of biblical examples of the power and importance of true friendship. We'll focus on the deep bond that existed between David and Jonathan, and examine how we can cultivate our own friendships. Outside of your immediate family, consider the relationships in your life. How can you be a better friend to others? What can you do to deepen and make your current relationships more meaningful? And if your life is lacking friendships, are you willing to give yourself away and show true friendship to others, regardless of what you receive in return? With these thoughts in view, let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18 and look at the four faces of friendship, line on line. 1
0: Samuel 18 One of the greatest words in any any language would be to call somebody else a friend. But you can't use that term lightly. Because a friend is one of your most valuable assets. To call somebody a friend involves something. It means, as we already mentioned, you're going to take risks. You're going to lay your heart bare. You'll be vulnerable. Which all translates into, you're going to get hurt somewhere along the line in that relationship. Anytime there is love, there's going to be pain. Anytime there's friendship, there's going to be risk. Now before we move on, there was a question that we got on the internet that I wanted to share sort of along this line. It says, what should our response be when another Christian rejects our friendship? What should our response be when another Christian rejects our friendship? Well, it's hard to imagine that somebody who's a Christian, a child of God, a representative of God, forgiven of all of their sins, is going to reject another Christian's friendship. but. I'm sure that happens from time to time. What do you do? Well, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, if somebody is offended by you, go to that person. Find out what it is. Try to deal with it. If they're not going to receive you, bring somebody else and try to settle the issue with the mediator. Sometimes that doesn't even work, however. Sometimes they don't want anything, they're just mad. And they treat you like your enemy. If that's the case, let me just tell you what Jesus said. He said, love your enemies. So if they're going to say, great, let's go to the same church, but you're my enemy, let's worship the same God, but you're my enemy, then love your enemies. If you can't love them as a friend, if they won't let you love them as a friend, love them as an enemy. It'll drive them nuts (laughs) to forgive them and to love them. And by the way, Jesus said that we forgive, what, twice? Three times and you're out, or 70 times seven. And before you go, great, I'm going to start counting 490 and then it's over with. You get the idea. It's an incessant, continual forgiveness, just like God forgave us. So you do your best. You can't guarantee forgiveness, or can you guarantee friendship? Which sort of brings up an issue. You know, people say, well, if that's the case, if there's going to be pain in friendship, hurt in friendship, and by the way, if there's somebody that could adjust the um, um, air conditioner in here, I see a lot of people fanning tonight, so they must be toasty. But um, the question is, why bother then? I mean, if, if if there's going to be a risk, if I'm going to get hurt, why should I bother? Why should I risk being hurt? It's easier to be alone and withdrawn you're right. It's easier, but it's not better. One of the first things God said is, it is not good that man should be alone. We need to develop relationships of interdependence for you to grow emotionally and spiritually. You know, when you're all by yourself, you're wonderful. Nobody better. Nobody holier. It's when you have to interact with other human beings. There's the rub, sometimes literally. I remember when I was single and I thought, you know, I'm a pretty neat guy. But when you enter into a friendship, when you enter into a marriage, when you enter into a relationship, that other person has a different personality and by the very nature of the interaction will point out to you flaws in your character that you don't like but you need to know them. Because if you don't know them, you can't grow and mature. By the way, God's all about the team, you know that, not the Lone Ranger. He's all about the team. I know we picture in our minds this sort of Lone Ranger mentality that God uses. Oh, Paul the Apostle, he was out there by himself, baloney. Paul had a team, man. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Silas, Paul and Luke, and a whole host of people. There was Peter, James, and John who were often seen together in the Bible. There was Elijah, but he had his Gehazi. There was Ruth and Naomi, and there was Aquila and Priscilla in the New Testament. They formed a great team. The Gallup organization said, Of the Americans who ate dinner last night, 22% ate alone. Study by the American Council of Life Insurance reported, most lonely, the, the most lonely group in America are college students. Next on the list of loneliest people, divorced people, and then welfare recipients, single mothers, rural students, and finally housewives, tying with the elderly. Now why am I telling you this? Because, listen, there's no other group that should be able to provide the kind of fellowship and acceptance and love like the Church of Jesus Christ. We should be the ones, knowing that this is a reality, who can be a blessing to others by reaching out to them. Now I want to take you back to chapter 17 for just a moment. I've had you turn to 18 for a very important reason. We skipped over a large section of 18 last week, and we want to look at this sort of topically part of 17, or part of 18, part of 19, and part of 20 if we have the time tonight. But if you go back. I'm going to give you four faces, or four facets, you might say, of friendship. And then I want you to grade yourself. Not out loud, don't worry. But just in your own heart before the Lord. First is initiative. Gino said, what it says in Proverbs, He who has friends must himself be friendly. Now I want you to watch this. In chapter 17, this is of course David coming back from killing Goliath. In verse 55, when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I don't know. So the king said, Well, inquire whose son this young man is. And David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine. Abner took him, brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. (laughs) I don't know, but just the visual of this cracks me up. As Saul said to him, "'Whose son are you, young man?' David answered, holding the head, "'I'm the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite.' Now, chapter 18, verse 1, when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit," literally, chained, to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So that day, or he, Saul took him that day and would not let him go to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and the bow and his belt." Now, get the picture. Here's David standing in shepherd's garb before the king, holding this big old head in his hand. You know, it had to be gross, right? It had to be like dripping. And he's standing there before the king, head in hand, (laughs) recounting the battle. And Jonathan is impressed with this guy because he has two things his dad doesn't have, faith in God and guts. By the way, he himself didn't even have that because nobody would fight Goliath, only David did. He just looked at him and went, wow, I like this guy, got the head in his hand. He loves God. had faith in God. He won the battle with that. And it says, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. He made a covenant. Boy, I like this idea. I like this idea of making a a covenant, a pact. You know, we have covenants for everything else. Why not friendship? There's covenants in neighborhoods. You can't have 18 cars piled up in the front yard or tires piled up. Those are covenants, restrictions. You can't show satellite dishes in some neighborhoods. You have a covenant with the bank that you will make the payments on the car or the apartment or the house. Why not a covenant, a pact a friendship? Hey, let's be friends. What does that mean exactly? A covenant was made, a covenant of friendship. And again that Proverbs comes to mind, Proverbs 18, he who has friends must himself be friendly. Jonathan took the initiative with David. Now listen carefully. When he took that stuff off and gave it to David and made the initiative to become a friend, Jonathan did not choose to have a friend as much as he chose to be a friend. And there's a big difference. Anybody can choose to have a friend. That's operating from the basis of need rather than supply. But when you offer to be someone's friend, you are now working from the basis of supply. When you work from the basis of need, you demand, where have you been? How come you're not around when I want you? Then it's all about me. But when you're, off, when you're coming from the basis of supply, what can I do for you? How can I help you? That's taking the initiative that we're talking about. Ruth did that, you remember, with Naomi in the Old Testament? They were kissing, saying their goodbyes. And as Naomi was going back to Bethlehem, Ruth basically said, now wait a minute. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And that forged a lifelong friendship. And I think that when people see your initiative, that you're willing to take a risk, step out, invest yourself, they're going to respond to that. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's just not me. I'm just, I'm shy. You know what? Probably five-eighths, nine-tenths of the people sitting around you right now are the same way. Somebody's got to make contact and take the initiative. And so step number one, he took the initiative. Now, the opposite is also true, that a person who is not a friendly person who withdraws is not going to have many friends. You know, you can come to church every week or fellowship group or anywhere and just go, okay, I'm standing around and I've been here like for 15 minutes and nobody's come up to be my friend. Hey, cop a clue. It's probably not going to happen. You take the initiative. And if you don't, you're going to be a lonely person and let me warn you. If you isolate yourself, it's very dangerous. It's not according to God's plan. He didn't design you that way. It's not good for somebody to be alone. It also says in Proverbs 18 a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire and rages against all wise judgment. Did you know that in World War II, the enemy of America, at that time, the Germans, conducted several experiments to find out what is the best way to extract information from the American enemies that we capture. They discovered solitary confinement was the most effective tool in getting a person to talk. They had been so isolated, they yearned for some kind of communication, even if that means I tell you secrets, to get a response from you. They were willing to do it. So we have to be careful. We need fellowship because we can become easy prey for our enemy, the devil to get to us, cause us to compromise and abandon our values. And again, no one should be able to provide fellowship as well as the Christian church. So number one, initiative. Number two, the second facet, or face, if you will, of friendship is encouragement. Encouragement. You have to maintain a relationship. You have to oil it, you know? Otherwise it gets a little squeaky, the hinges are, ah, ah, ah. You got to do something more than just shake a hand or introduce yourself. You want to follow up. Now, look at verse four. Jonathan took off the robe that was on him, gave it to David with the armor, even to his sword and bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. There's David. He's in a simple shepherd's garb, probably the skirt of his robe, pulled up, tied up a little bit under the belt, his sash, because he was, after all, fighting Goliath. Very simple. A covenant was made between Jonathan and David. Then Jonathan gives something to him that is very precious. In essence, he's saying, I know you're called of God. I know about the anointing that happened with Samuel. I know that you're next to be king on the throne. I know it's not me, even though dynastically I should be the next after my father. But David, you demand, man. You're him. Here, you take the armor. You take the sword. You take the royal robe. After all, you're the hero. You won the battle. You deserve these things. It was an acknowledgement, a recognition, an encouragement that he was the one that God had chosen. And friendship is maintained by the oil of encouragement. Here it's seen in giving. Wherever love is present, there has to be giving. Because when you love someone, you look for ways to please that person, to help that person. You want to give of yourself. For God so loved the world that he, Gave his only begotten Son. And we encourage people when we give our time, our resources, our encouragement. Whenever we do that, we are reflecting the Lord in whose name we come. We reflect God. People can pick up on the family traits. You may have heard about a little boy who was standing in front of a supermarket, or excuse me, a, a big um, department store in a big city in the middle of wintertime. He had no shoes on, and he has his little feet out by the grate, warming his feet, trying to get his toes warm, no socks, no shoes. And a woman came by, going into shop, and she said, little boy, you telling me you have no shoes on, or did you just take them off to play? He goes, I don't have any shoes. So she went inside and bought him three or four pairs of shoes, socks, and gave it to him. As she was smiling on her way, he said, wait a minute, let me ask you a question. Are are you God's wife? And she said, no, I'm not God's wife. Where'd you get that idea? Not at all. I'm I'm just a child of God. He said, oh, I sort of figured you were related. You know, you just exhibit the family traits. God loved, he gave, this woman also gave. Now, This episode we're reading is a a happy time. David just slew Goliath. The, The people are rejoicing. Songs are being sung. Saul's happy at this moment. Jonathan is happy. David is happy. But it won't always be like this. And friendships aren't always like that. There will be some deep dips for David and Jonathan. Their friendship will be tested. And at the darkest times which you will come to see in the next few chapters, there is Jonathan, to encourage him, to strengthen him. Listen, where would David be without Jonathan? Disconnected. That's where he'd be. He'd be disconnected. Think how far somebody would go if you were to be the one to bring them encouragement. Think how far in life God could push someone, God could use someone, if you were the instrument, perhaps. Two people come to my mind, many come to my mind, but I'm going to give you two examples of somebody who really was responsible for me being here. One was Paul Smith. He is Chuck Smith's younger brother by one year. Now, both of them were like mentors to me, but Paul, in particular, was an encourager. You can do this, man. God's called you. I know he has. Come and teach a Bible study at my church, and then listening to it, you go, You're the man. God's called you. You go for it. When my brother died, Paul Smith was there. When my father died, Paul Smith was there. Always, it points in my life to encouragement. And then, uh, another fellow by the name of Jack Stevens. He's come and spoken here a couple of different times. But he was an encouragement to me when I moved to New Mexico. I didn't know if I should come here or not. I wrestled with it. As soon as I was getting ready to come and I put all my belongings here, got here to Albuquerque, a check for a thousand dollars came in the mail from a church in California of which Jack was the pastor of. A simple note, we believe in what God is going to do through you, use this as you feel led. And at a time of discouragement that meant so much to me, got me going. Listen, encouragement is so needed in the body of Christ, and yet it is often non-existent among Christians. Henry Drummond once said, "'How many prodigals are kept out of the kingdom of God by all of those unlovely characters who profess to be inside?' We need to be masters of encouragement. But we've all heard Christians talk in little groups. We've overheard what they've said. Sometimes it can be very disparaging putting people down instead of encouraging them. But the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter three, encourage one another daily and even more as you see the day approaching. Encourage one another daily. So that's our task. That's what we're called to do, to initiate, to encourage, to go out on a limb, you might say. Hey, how about a pat on the back? It's a lot better than the kick in the pants. It'll go a lot further. Doing a great job. God bless you. I love you. Thank you. You're awesome. You mean a lot to me. I'm praying for you. Things like that. Third facet that we see here is support. Support. Or you might say advocacy, but support is just a lot easier to say. He sticks up for them verbally. Look at chapter 19 now. Skip ahead to verse 1 of chapter 19. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. Jonathan told David, saying, My father seeks to kill you, therefore please be on your guard until morning. And stay in a secret place and hide, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. I will speak with my father about you, and what I observe, I will tell you. Saul is bent on David's destruction. He is Mr. Schizophrenic, we see throughout his life. He says, I'm going to kill David. He'll be dissuaded here. Okay, you're right, I won't kill him. Next chapter, I'm killing him. Later on, David himself will dissuade him, I'm sorry, David, I love you. Next chapter, I'm going to kill him. He's like nutso. And his son puts his life on the line for him, sticks up for him, talks to his dad. His father, Saul, persuades the entire army that David is the enemy. But Jonathan doesn't buy it because it says Jonathan delighted greatly in David. Or a better translation, he prized him. He prized him immensely. You know, there are many, let's call them fair-weathered friends. They're around you when you can do something for them. It's amazing how these people just seem to pop up in certain people's lives. I've noticed that with people who are wealthy, they have a lot of financial wherewithal to offer someone and all of a sudden friends pop up out of nowhere. Hi, friend. How are you? I've been praying for you lately. (laughs) Oh, by the way, I sort of have a need, but listen, just, just for you to pray about. Howard Hendricks, Dallas Theological Seminary, was acting as a chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys in the locker room when one of the Dallas Cowboys had his... Head down in his hands. And he said, You know, chaplain, I can't tell the difference from my friends and my enemies. He had just gotten swindled out of $75,000. He goes, I can't tell my friends from my enemies. I wish there was somebody out there who loved me and accepted me, not for my name or my number, but just for me. Jonathan was next in line to be the king. He had everything to lose. And he was willing to lose it and stand up for David. We see it all the way through his life. Verse 4, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. And he said, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good towards you. So he prized this guy and valued his friendship enough to put his own reputation and life on the line and speak up for his friend David. Now, Jonathan is his son, and he's coming before his own father, but he's treating David like blood brothers. You know, there's a scripture in Proverbs 18, verse 24, I'm going to read it to you in the message it's called, an alternate translation. Friends come and friends go, but a true friend sticks by you like family. You know it as, but a friend sticks closer than a brother. Or there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. But here it is, a friend sticks by you like family, ready to support, ready to hold you up. That's a true friend. Verse 6, So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. That didn't last long. As soon as David comes back, there's a sword, a spear, Uh, sitting by Saul's chair and he's just looking at David and jealousy comes into his head and he thinks, I'm going to kill that little guy and throws a spear at him again. And so David has to flee again. Now we go to chapter 20. Turn there. This is the fourth facet of friendship. The fourth face, it's called risk. Risk. So you take the initiative, you add the oil of encouragement, You bring in constant support, and then you add risk. You see, every relationship is going to be tested. And here Jonathan is actually torn between believing his dad and believing his friend. Look in chapter 20, Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Now remember, his dad just said, Okay, I'm not going to kill him. Then he threw a spear at him. But Jonathan really thinks, No, dad's not going to kill him. Jonathan said to him, By no means! You shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without telling me first. Obviously he wasn't in the room at the time. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. And David took an oath again, saying, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Don't let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So Jonathan said to David, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. Now let me tell you what happened. After this conversation, and this is the night before what the Jews called the new moon, the next day was the festival of the new moon. David was part of the court of Saul, the king. He was supposed to be in the dining room eating dinner with him. David decides, I'm not going. He wants to kill me. I'm not going to show up for dinner. So I want you to tell your dad that I'm going to Bethlehem. because. My father and my brothers want me home for the new moon feast, so I'm going and you tell him that I'm gone. And let's watch his reaction to my being absent from the dining table. And they, they developed a little code. Jonathan said, tell you what, the day after the new moon, the following day, a couple days from now, you hide behind this rock out there in the field, and I'm going to shoot some arrows out. And I'm going to have a boy go out and get the arrows. And here's the code, David if after I shoot the arrows and the boy goes out to fetch them, if I say, the arrows are there to the side of you, that means safe, man. You're okay. Come back home. Live with us. Come back to Saul in the court. But if when the boy goes out to fetch the arrows, I said, the arrows are beyond you. Keep going. When you hear those words, beyond you, know that you better go beyond the rock and get out of here. You flee. So the next day, They're all seated for the festival. Saul is there. His court members are there. Jonathan is there. David's chair is empty. Saul goes, where's that Bethlehemite kid, David? Jonathan said, well, he had to go home today for uh, the feast. Oh, okay, great. Next day, chair is vacant. Hey, where's David? Oh, he had to go home for the feast. At this, at this point, Saul gets so angry He's willing to kill Jonathan. He's willing to kill Jonathan. We're going to pick it up down in verse uh, 24. But but before we do, I want you to notice that phrase. Look look back in verse 3. There is but a step between me and death. In other words, you know, the truth is, Jonathan, I could die at any time. That's how vulnerable I am. That's how much your dad wants to kill me. Do you know that tonight the same is true for you? Do you know that tonight there is but a step between you and death? You go, what, are you trying to scare me? No. just trying to give you a little perspective, maybe think about things in a different light. I've watched a lot of people die over the years. I've been in hospitals and watched them take their last breath. I've been with family members who said, I wish we could have talked before he died or she died. I love you, I wish I could have told you that personally, but they're gone. And I've watched people die without Christ. I've watched people that I love personally and thought, oh, they're going to be around for a long time, die suddenly. I was shocked the night my father called me and said, your brother Bob is dead. Killed in a motorcycle incident. Killed instantly. You know, I think in my mind, no, 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 wait a minute. (laughs) That happens to other people, other families. I read about those things in newspapers. They don't happen to us. And it happened like that. I remember vividly the night I talked to my mother when my dad died. Instantly. We didn't think anything would come of this soon. Instantly. We probably average about one funeral a week at Calvary. So we're familiar that there's a step between you and death. As true as that is, there is a step between you and life, one step between you and life. How do you get to God? Twelve steps? One. Fourteen steps? One. One step. It's the step of faith and repentance combined. It's where you say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord personally. I'm going to receive him by faith. I'm going to take that step and come to him. Now, that includes repentance, that you acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you're under the judgment of God if you were to die without Christ. And if you were to stand before God in your own sins, you won't go to heaven, which causes you to be aware of your need for a Savior. And you recognize that and you believe that, that act of faith and knowledge of your sin and your need for Christ, you ask him to be your Lord and Savior. There's a step between you and life. I was in a hospital room a few years ago with a man I had recently met. He was from Cuba originally. His father was the defense minister for Fidel Castro. This man that I was visiting in the hospital had a plot to assassinate Castro. He and his brothers. I knew this because I spoke with his friend growing up, Franklin Graham, and his mother, who grew up with Mrs. Graham. And Ruth Graham called me and said, Would you visit him? And I talked to the local DEA and FBI, and they said, Stay away from him. He's hunted. We want him. We're going to arrest him. When he developed cancer, I went to him and shared. Christ. It's what I do. It's what I believe passionately. He went, "Yeah. Yeah. Not interested. Been religious, been there, done that. Don't want him, don't want it. Bye-bye." When Franklin Graham came to town, I told him about Tony and brought Tony to hear Franklin, and Franklin and I both talked to him personally afterwards and he just said, "I'm fine. Don't want to hear about it. Don't care." Thank you very much. It was all very polite but very definite. As the months wore on and the cancer grew and he became weakened and I saw him in the hospital one night, a couple of days before his death, I said, Tony, you know God still loves you. He got very quiet. I said, Tony, I want to tell you a story about a man who was dying on the cross when Jesus was dying on the cross. He was a thief just like you, Tony. He was a scoundrel, just like you, Tony. He was a wretch, just like you. I told him that because he had just finished saying, I'm a wretch. I'm a scoundrel. Why would God want me or anything to do with me? I've lived my life for the devil. How could at this point in my life I turn my life over to him and he forgive everything? He said, Tony, there's a step between you and death. There's a step between you and life. Let me tell you about this man, Tony. He was on the cross, and at the last minute, with his last breath, he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It was a sincere act of faith from his heart, the recognition, I am a scoundrel, I am a sinner. Remember me. I deserve this. You don't. I said, Jesus turned to him and didn't say, well, first of all, you better prove that you really mean this. I want to see some fruit. I want to see baptism. I want to see church membership. I want to see you wear a suit next week. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. This is the only time I remember seeing Tony weep like a baby in his hospital room. He cried and he said, that is so beautiful. Jesus could say that to him in his last dying breath, I said, he can say it to you, Tony. You've been blowing this off for months. He can say it to you. He received Christ. And tonight he's in heaven. He's in the presence of God. He lived a whole life away from Christ. But there was that step, and he took it. He realized, yep, I'm a scoundrel. Yep, I'm el Cripo numero uno. Yep, I need a Savior. That recognition brought him to Christ. That step is what some of you haven't yet taken. You've watched others take it. You've come oh so close. You said, oh, oh, there's a few other steps. I'll do this on my own. You've taken every step, but the step to him. There's a step between you and life tonight. Okay, look at verse uh, 24. Let's get down to it. This is where uh, Jonathan shows what kind of a friend he really is with risk. Then David hid in the field, and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to the feast, and the king sat on a seat, as was at other times, on a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something's happened to him. He's unclean. Surely he is unclean. And it happened the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, why has the son of Jesse not come to eat, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, Please let me go, for our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. And now, if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he's not come to the king's table. And Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. That's a New King James way of saying something we know." Well, that's what it is. I mean, this is a profanity he's speaking. I'm not going to say it, don't worry. What? I mean, it's, it's there. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame, to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul his father and said, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Saul cast a spear at him to kill him." What a schizo, what a nutcase. Here he is in one hand saying, As long as he lives, you can't be the king. You're supposed to be the king." And then he throws a spear at him to kill him. Hello? By which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. Wow. Jonathan was a true friend. There's an old saying that says, blood runs thicker than the milk of human kindness. Not so with Jonathan. Not so. He did what he knew was right. He did what he knew was right. I got a fra- question here that comes from the Internet, and uh, we couldn't answer it before, but it goes right, it goes perfectly right in here. Um, how loyal should you be to a friend? Jonathan angered his own father because of his loyalty to David. Does that mean the friendship comes before family? That's a good question. He alienated his father for the friendship of David. So the question is, does that mean the friendship should come before family? No, it means God's will should come before family, friends, self, anything else. Let's put that first. God's will comes first. The question, should your friend or your family, which is it, which comes first, isn't the issue. For. Jonathan, he wanted to do the right thing. And the right thing he knew, God's will, was this young man named David is going to be the next king. God showed that to me. I believe that. I've invested myself in that. I'll stick up for that. That's God's will. I would hope that my father would see that he has, and I have to obey God rather than men. And let me me answer the question this way, too. You know, you ask, well, should you side with your friend or should you side with your family? You know what the best relationship in life is? When your family is your friend. When you have friends within your family. I can say truly, my wife is my best friend. Not because it's a cliche, but because it's true. She's my friend. She's my soulmate. My son is my friend. So learn to cultivate friendships within the family. Saul would have no part of that, so Jonathan is left to do what is right before God and to substantiate God's will. Actually, Jonathan reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let me refresh your memory with it. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud. Love is never glad about injustice but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. It is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Love will last forever, or love never fails an English newspaper gave a contest for the definition of a friend. Whoever would write in with the best definition would win a prize of some kind, I don't know, a free cup of tea somewhere. I don't know what the prize was, but... Free trip to the orthodontist. I don't know exactly what it was, but... (laughs) the, uh, The people wrote into the newspaper and some said, you know, a friend is somebody who's You know, divide sorrows and grief and all the typical things. But one particular definition that won the prize was this. A friend is somebody who comes in when the rest of the world goes out. How alienating must it have been for David when Saul, his boss, when Saul's court, his co-workers, when the people of Israel were all turned against David, only one came in when everybody went out, and that was Jonathan. Doesn't the Bible say that? A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. It's when friendship is tested in adversity you really see who your friends are. I grew up under a pastor in Southern California by the name of Chuck Smith, who has an interesting makeup. He is willing to put himself, his reputation, his very life on the line if he knows something is right. And I've seen him on more than one occasion risk his reputation standing up to defend friends of his that he knew before the Lord were right. I've seen him lose favor with people. I've seen people leave his church because of it. But to him, it wasn't who's right and who's wrong, but what's right, what's right before God, willing to risk. Jonathan was like that. Verse 41, as soon as the lad had gone, that's the kid getting the arrows, David arose from his place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground, bowed down three times, and they kissed one another and they wept together, but David more so. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, between your descendants and my descendants forever. And he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Did you notice the language? Because in that language is the secret of their friendship. He says, they swore in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me. Here's the secret. Both Jonathan and David had a heart for the Lord, a heart for spiritual things. The attraction between them was their love for God, One of the sickest opinions in our modern culture is to look back through the pages of history and say, oh, Jonathan and David were homosexuals. That's an actual belief of many people. They were lovers because Jonathan, and when he dies on Mount Gilboa in 2 Samuel 1, David lifts up his lament and says, oh, Jonathan, oh, Jonathan, your love to me was greater than the love of a woman. And so they go, oh, see, he loved greater than a woman, he was a homosexual, how perverse. All you're doing with that opinion is giving away the gutter that your life is in. You know, there's people that have gutter minds and every thought goes into the gutter. And that kind of an opinion is just a personal commentary on a twisted mind. No, Jonathan loved David like God told him to love David, love your neighbor as yourself. Jonathan, it shows, had no relationship at that time. We don't know if he was married at the time. The idea is that, you're such a friend to me. You're such a soulmate to me. And without the benefit of a wife in his life at that time, they just developed a bond of friendship where they shared their innermost being, their hearts with each other, loving the neighbor as oneself. They both loved God, and that was the attraction. Well, That's the close of our study tonight. We've sort of looked at chapter 20, going back to chapter 17, 18, 19, and into 20 to look at David and Jonathan because last week we looked at Saul and David. This is now Jonathan and David. And let me just say, this is part one. When we get into chapter 23, we see part two of their friendship. And we'll pick up a few more facets. Let me just sort of close with two thoughts I want you to walk away with. Number one. Make sure your best friend is Jesus. Don't let that be a cliche. Make sure your closest best friend is Jesus. You know why? Because the Bible calls Jesus the friend of sinners. What a great title. Because I'm the first one to say, Oh, I'm a perfect candidate to be one of Jesus' friends. (laughs) Because I've got a whole list of my failures. And those who know me can... Add to the list. He's a friend of sinners. Make sure your best friendship is with him. Number two, develop friendships. You take the initiative to develop friendships using these principles, being the first one, initiative, and then go and encourage, support, and even to the point of risk. You might say, well, nobody's interested in me. I wish I had a Jonathan. Hey, why don't you be a Jonathan? Why don't you operate from the basis of supply? You say, well, I can't. I don't have anything to offer. Oh, yes, you do. You're redeemed, right? You're forgiven, right? You have the Holy Spirit living in you, right? You have gifts of the Spirit. All of you do as believers in Christ. You have a wealth. In fact, when you go take the risk and take the step to be a Jonathan to somebody, that's when you'll watch your life really open up. You'll watch it open up. It'll blossom then. And let me just have one final word to men. You know that males have the worst, hardest time when it comes to making male friendships. Oh, we like to mock it. Oh, we're bonding.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, really? Are you? It's hard for many men to get out of their little macho comfort zone and tell another guy, I have a need. I'm in sorrow, I'm hurting, I'm being tempted, I need accountability, I need you as my friend, and I want to be your friend. It's hard for us to do that. What qualities do you have that others would find in common with you? Would another person notice, she's so in love with the Lord, he's so in love with the Lord, that guy just loves the Lord qualities that were irresistible between David and Jonathan. Heavenly Father, we have seen a little cameo into two guys' lives. One who was a young shepherd with a very simple faith in a big God, and another privileged son of a king named Jonathan who looked at that other lad and said, that guy has faith and that guy has guts. And he's the next king. Because of that, he was willing to take the initiative, make a covenant, He was willing to add encouragement by giving him the armor and the robe, his time, his resources. And he was willing to support this young man, standing up for him even before his father when that relationship was in jeopardy. And then finally, Lord, he risked his own life for his friend. Lord, hearing all these attributes, we can't help but think how much that sounds like Jesus, who took the initiative. He's the one that came here, who loved us when we were yet in our sin. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And oh, how encouraging you are, Lord, to us. When we fall down, you're so willing to pick us up, brush us off, forgive us, and say, It's okay. I died for that sin too. And you support us, Lord. You're our advocate before the throne of your Father. When Satan is the accuser of the brethren, you stick up for us. And not only did you risk your own life, you gave your own life for us. Lord, many of us tonight aren't your friends because you're a stranger to us. We've never let you in. Lord, I pray for some who have come tonight perhaps have never really seen it this way before. You were always relegated to the stained glass cathedrals or the ancient holy books or behind robes and candles, but it was never an intimate personal relationship with a God who loved them and dared to come into their world to love and die for them. And so, Father, we pray that you would do a work now, here, before us, in bringing more friends into the camp into the camp, into the camp, into the camp, into the camp.